кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Годом вас. С новым веком. As Russia's war against Ukraine drags into its 11th month, and as its battlefield losses mount, cracks are beginning to increasingly become evident in the centralized top-down political system that Vladimir Putin has built. A schism is becoming increasingly evident between those in the elite who want Putin to stop the military onslaught and those who insist he must escalate further. And with Putin caught in the middle between these two factions, he is increasingly pleasing neither of them. Additionally, mainstays of the Russian political calendar, like Putin's annual State of the Nation speech and his annual marathon press conference, have been abruptly canceled. So will 2023 be the year that Putin's war in Ukraine comes home and destabilizes his authoritarian political system? Stick around, because I got just the guest to help us unpack it all. Hello and Happy New Year from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood. And welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UCA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Vilnius, Lithuania, which is one of my favorite cities in the world, is leading Russian opposition figure Vladimir Milov. In addition to leading and founding various parties and movements over the years, including Democratic Choice, Solidarnost, and For a Russia Without Lawlessness and Corruption, Vladimir also served as Russia's Deputy Energy Minister. Welcome back to The Vertical, Vladimir. You're officially the first guest of 2023. Hello, Brian. Great to be with you again, and Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. So, Vladimir, we haven't really done much Russian domestic politics on the vertical for a while, which is funny because it was once the mainstay of the program. Um, this is partly because the Russia's war in Ukraine has pretty much blocked out the sun um, and taken up all of our time. But it's also because of another reason. Uh, the political system has become so opaque and so non-transparent that we, or at least outsiders like me, don't really have much visibility into what is actually happening than we once did. And this is why I wanted to have you on as our first guest of 2023. So, Vladimir, how do you see the Russian elite at this point? Is it consolidated? Is it divided? As some media reports suggest, where are the fractures and what are the implications? Uh, Brian, I'm afraid I'm probably going to disappoint a lot of your listeners because um, I'm a non-believer uh, in a popular theory that there are some powerful Russian elites out there who run the show. I think actually there's uh, near zero uh, ground evidence for this. And what we saw in the past years, and particularly since the beginning of uh, the uh, aggression against Ukraine uh, since February 24th last year, is that it's all Putin, 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 Putin. So I know I, I know that many political analysts, commentators, they want a classic scheme. They want... Uh, uh, you know, power groups, uh, they want different Kremlin towers, infighting, uh, influencing Putin in different directions. But as a matter of fact, I don't, uh, it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's making comparison with space exploration is like a Fermi paradox in a way. We're listening out there, but I, I don't get much of a signal that uh, there are really some powerful clans uh, which run the show. 
uh, a lot still. I know it's hard to believe for many people, how can we get such kind of an absolutist monarchy in the 21st century where everything is really dependent on one man, but all the hard evidence on the ground suggests that unfortunately that is the case, shameful as it is for Russian society, but that is the case. It's mostly Putin. Yes, there are different groups of influence, but uh, their uh, real power is greatly exaggerated by many commentators. And uh, whatever they think, are they hardliners or doves, uh, their influence is greatly exaggerated. So uh, I think the best evidence for that is what we saw about a year ago uh, with the broadcast of Putin's National Security Council actually before the invasion. I mean, listen, he was talking to all of them like chicken, like they were first graders passing the exam. Uh, I I never saw anything resemblant uh, of presence of some powerful people who can say no to Putin, who can be insistive of some kind of their own ideas and so on. Again, unfortunately, primitive as it is, but to me, it's all Putin, 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 Putin. I don't exactly. I don't. I don't act, actually. Don't disagree with you, Vladimir. And this is a trend that I've been tracking well before the aggression against Ukraine in, on February 24th of last year. Um, I, I've seen this trend beginning back in 2014, 2015, when Putin began to call his inner circle. I mean, I, I, I described this at the time of Putin moving from a Brezhnevian model of collective rule, which is what I think we had in Putin's first two terms, and up until maybe 2014, 2015, until he began to call his inner circle of a lot of his longtime cronies, people like Vladimir Yakunin and Sergei Imanov um, and, 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 and so on. And I argued at the time that he was moving from a Brezhnevian system to a more Stalin system. Um, not meaning in terms of the repressions, but in terms of that the system is built around one figure. Um, Andrei Kolesnikov, our common friend, had a, had an article in Foreign Affairs recently saying that Putin is moving into his Stalin phase. Um, but even in that situation, there are kind of vectors of influence. If Putin is indeed moving into his Stalin phase, are there vectors of influence? Who's he talking to? Who is influencing him? I have to agree that, yes, uh, we were uh, rapidly moving away from uh, anything resemblant of a collective decision-making model, because uh, first, initially, when Putin came to power like 22, 23 years ago, in the first few years, he got rid of most of the charismatic, uh, influential, uh, you know, power brokers and leaders with anything resembling of legitimacy. Then he really started to sideline his own circle, uh, Cherkesov, Yakunin, Ivanov, and others, some of the folks that you just mentioned. So the, the gradual evolution was that uh, he was surrounding himself with loyal yes men, and some of them are yes women, not not too many, but still. Uh, so uh, actually, a- anyone with independent voice was sidelined, removed, and uh, so on. So I think that is the trend, which is compatible with what I said uh, in the first place. So the, the elite uh, that we are observing right now had uh, sort of lost um, any kind of uh, uh, any signs of real independent behavior, ability to say no to Putin and uh, so on. Now, in terms of vectors at the moment, uh, what I see and what is striking to me 
is really the absence, what, no, no matter what some commentators want to invent and attach to it, uh, but there is really an absent vector uh, which is uh, calling for withdrawal of troops, ending the war, and uh, reversing the policy, policies that uh, Putin has been pursuing in the past uh, 12 months. The, I mean, let's be frank about it. There are zero people who are calling for reversal of the aggression, uh, for making a peace with Ukraine. Directly to uh, people, Putin. Directly yes, to Putin, yes. not through blind quotes yes. in the press and things like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, we, we can try to look for some signs, like some people make a lot of uh, Moscow Mayor Sabanian being silent about the war. But I think the plausible explanation is that Moscow is pretty much an anti-war city, and he just does not want to go right. against the majority of its citizens. But uh, uh, there are zero signs that Sabanian actually is trying to convince Putin to reverse uh, the course and stop the aggression. So what we see uh, are some uh, very vocal hardliners, uh, which are calling for you know even more brutal approach approach that Putin is currently engaged in. Yes, uh, that exists. So uh, we we are now between a rock and a hard place. We have a pretty hardline Putin's approach, which is extremely aggressive and uh, based on the idea that aggression needs to be continued, whatever the cost. And yes, we have even a more hardliner group, which argues that Russia needs to go even even more extreme. You mean the military so, bloggers, basically, yeah? Uh, military bloggers, the, the ultra-patriotic, the public ultra-patriotic segment, which is allowed to speak. I mean, let's mm -hmm. call it that way. Okay. I think uh, we might come uh, further to Prigozhin. Prigozhin is probably the connecting tissue between this public, yeah. uh, publicly allowed uh, ultra-imperialist, ultra-nationalist hardliners and the ruling circles. Uh, so I, I don't think Prigozhin has a lot of influence, but he's more of a connection between ultra-hardliners in the public and people in the government. Uh, so, but we don't have much vectors beyond that. So we have Putin's course versus publicly suggested even more hardline course. Beyond that, I really don't see anybody trying to change uh, the, the policy course in any other direction. Yeah, I like that. I mean, the party of war I've identified in the elite is effectively Prigozhin, Patrushev, and Kovalchuk. Um, that's where I basically see the, the main vectors. Kovalchuk got a lot of face time with Putin during uh, during COVID, is my understanding, as did as did Patrushev. But you you correctly say that there is really nobody on the other side. If we kind of bring this into Stalinist terms, there's a right opposition, but there's not a left opposition, if you will. Um, but they, these people exist. Are they just frightened? Are they just too frightened to 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 speak out right now? And could that change going forward? Well, as on one hand, yes, they're really much, uh, very much frightened, and this is the feedback that I get uh, from a lot of my former colleagues who work in the government, a lot of them at really high-ranked positions, is that they're really afraid to not only to speak, but just to do anything, to give a slightest hint that they are against uh, Putin's policies. First, uh, and I mean, seriously, this is very practical. Anybody of them is very afraid that they are being monitored and recorded 24-7. Uh, and I mean, that, that's a real possibility. We know many cases when uh, top officials were bugged and that became evident and, and, and so on. So they're really afraid uh, that they are under surveillance. So they cannot even, 
what I'm hearing is that some people say, Volodya, we cannot even discuss how much we disagree with Putin in one-on-one -on -one meetings. So that the meeting of three, four, five, six people discussing uh, this situation in a negative mm -hmm. sense is impossible, impossible. Because for the, uh, to begin with, you never know who's going to snitch on you out of the participants and so on. So first, they are very afraid. Second, uh, they just don't see a plausible way how an anti-war faction can really consolidate itself in, in such a... So it's largely, I mean, it, it can be a lone rebellion, mm. but there is no sensible way how you can consolidate yourselves if you are against what Putin is doing or want to call for some softening of policies which might be taken for a betrayal. Right. So, so this is why. So, while the hardline faction, the Hawks, uh, they have like a green light in public. They can say whatever they're up to, but the peace faction in, is in a totally different position. Uh, it exists, but it's extremely fragmented, extremely compartmentalized, and it cannot consolidate. the The conditions are just not there because everybody would go crazy and paranoid about it. And I think you mentioned Patrushev. That's a very important part, because uh, I think in the past years, in particular the past 12 months, definitely, the National Security Council, where Patrushev is a secretary and controls all the apparatus, have wielded enormous power over all other branches of the Russian government. And Patrushev is indeed a very vocal, long-time promoter of a hardliner policy. He's one of the ayatollahs uh, right. of the current uh, Russian regime. And so everybody, I mean, uh, everybody who is even remotely thinking of like doing something to change the course, the first thing they think about is they would get on Patrushev radar, they would get on the National Security Council radar as potential traitors, that needs to be expelled, purged, uh, because they go against the current uh, policy line. Which means uh, I, I don't see any conditions for an effective consolidation and some kind of action for the potential anti-war party in, in the government, uh, even if it exists. And it, it, you, you raised a couple interesting points that I want to dr drill into a little bit here. You said the Hawks have the permission to speak, this nationalist imperialist faction, the, 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 the military bloggers and others. But they, they're directing their criticism, not at Putin personally, but at the generals in the field. They're very careful how they, how they direct their criticism. When I see kind of criticisms of the war and a desire to, to, to wind down the war, the, the, the party of peace, if you will, um, it tends to come in the form of blind quotes in articles by Western journalists. Um, there was a very good piece by, by my, my old friend and colleague, Catherine Belton, in the Washington Post this past week that was filled with bl blind quotes of Russian businessman, former Russian official. That could be you, for, for God's sakes. Like either. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean somebody that's even in Moscow. I don't know. I'm not going to, I mean, there's anonymous sources or anonymous sources. But this is the kind of dynamic I see. So you see Putin's allowing pressure from his right while the pressure from the left is being subdued. Do you see some method in this madness? Is, 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 is this something Putin doesn't want to be happening, this pressure coming from the right? Or does he like this? Because this actually leads him to where he really does want to go. 
Well, I, I don't know. I have a hard time defining this, actually, because I think Putin is finding himself in a, what I would call like a reverse Gorbachev. Yeah, moment. Yes, yes. Uh, because, because Gorbachev had started some sort of liberalization for um, uh, internal uh, inter-party struggle gain, but then it got out of control. So same thing here. Uh, I think Putin realized that he needed all these uh, hawks in the public for to ensure the, the popular consolidation uh, around his war cause. But now I'm pretty sure that he feels that things is, are getting out of control somehow. We can see certain signs uh, that there is some, some pressure on the most vocal people like Kadyrov and Prigozhin. Mm. This is not widely reported. But you can see, like, raids, criminal cases, uh, some refusals for their proposals, like Prigozhin has been loudly suggesting to build defense line in Belgorod and Kursk regions, which are adjacent to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But he was outright refused. Kadyrov has a problem with Batal Khadzinsi. That's a clan most loyal to him in Ingushetia. To make the long story short, uh, Kadyrov long wants to swallow the nearing region of Ingushetia. Right. Uh, but recently, the, the members of the most loyal uh, pro-Kadyrov clan in Ingushetia were arrested and raided. Uh, Kadyrov was protesting, but got nothing in result. So, mm -hmm. so in terms of the real administrative uh, action, we see uh, some moves to curb their activity, the activity of the most uh, radical folks. But I think at this moment, Putin still needs them more than he sees some harm in their actions and so on. But, but we, we never know what comes next. You, you said that, um, uh, and that's, that's a very interesting moment, uh, when uh, people are criticizing some generals and uh, some other people for, for failures on the battlefield and so on, but they stop short of, of naming Putin personally. Of course, yeah. I think we're on the brink of that. We're very close when this will actually begin happening. And in, in this regard, uh, Putin really will get mad. And here's where uh, he will not tolerate some of the criticism from the far right anymore. Yeah, I know that. And this is where one of this is the, the most likely way I see this destabilizing the regime. Uh, not in the direction that you and I would like to see it go, and that's in a more a more democratic direction, but in the in the other direction. I'm also glad you brought up the Gorbachev parallel because this is something I've been thinking about and talking about and actually thinking about writing about uh, because the the situation is is very almost identical. I mean, by unleashing his reforms, Gorbachev created a situation where he was pleasing nobody. Um, the Democrats wanted. You know, a dismantling of the Soviet system, and the hardliners wanted a restoration of the old Soviet system, and nobody—I mean, pretty much nobody—was where Gorbachev was. With Putin, I'm beginning to wonder if he is moving in that into that place. Um, these hardliners, these hawks—they want a military parade on the Kishatik, and that is not happening, right? Um, but and, and the 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 party of peace, as much as it exists or is, is as silent as it is, wants the pre-February twenty-fourth world. That apparently also is not happening. Do you see this destabilizing the regime one way or the other, even in the absence of this very this vocal uh, party of peace in the in in, in the Kremlin elite? Well, uh, the regime is definitely not stable uh, because uh, it's exactly right. I mean, there's a lot of uh, similarities with the Gorbachev situation because Putin has started the processes which he cannot control. 
which leads to a lot of failures and nobody is happy with it. Neither camp is happy with what uh, Putin is doing. So he only, uh, we, we talked about fear uh, when I described the situation inside the power circles. That is actually the only connecting tissue at the moment, fear and repression, mm. uh, which is holding this whole, uh, this whole system uh, together. But it's not going to get any better. The economy is not going to be getting any better. It's not going to improve on the battlefield, and Putin might suffer some major losses and so on. So the Russian public opinion, that, that's a separate topic, but I believe that it will begin waking up uh, very yep. soon, and he will, he will see a lot of domestic trouble. So we're heading towards a lot of difficulty. And uh, yes, uh, that is right. Neither camp, and that's, that's a lot of similarity with the Gorbachev situation. Neither camp is happy with Putin. We are just a few steps away from Putin being maimed across the country by various circles, including on television, including by members of the elite, as the guy who is actually responsible for, for what's going on. That is going to be a very interesting period. And I think my prediction is that from that point on, his authority will begin to very rapidly uh, decline because because he's he's been sustaining himself only as a leader who can perpetually endure a disregard of whatever difficulty russia experiences now, once if people will see that that's not the case anymore might trigger an avalanche uh, like it happened in the 80s yeah for that to happen this fear which is the connective tissue that you correctly point out is the only thing holding the system together that fear would have to dissipate i mean in my experience watching this over over the past several decades when you have when you don't have a consolidated regime in russia and you don't have fear you have political change this is what happened in the late 80s early 90s this is what happened toward the end of the yeltsin period Right when the regime was not consolidated and you didn't have fear, but when you do have the fear, the regime's always been able to pull it together. Think of the period after the Bolotnaya protests in 2011, 2012. The regime was not consolidated then, but Putin managed to reconsolidate it with fear. So, do you do you see the conditions of this fear lifting? Because that seems to me to be the crucial independent variable here. Uh, first, it's interesting, Brian, and I like the way you formulated it, because um, most people would say that nothing in Russia will ever change. Right. But you, you have correctly pointed out that in the past 40 years, we had effectively two major changes in our political mm. system, big U-turns. So we, we actually have the third edition, very mm. different edition of the political system in just 40 years. Mind you, all of you who say that uh, nothing will ever change in Russia, just third edition in just 40 years. So we're coming to the fourth. Now, uh, what is going to happen? I mean, uh, everybody, including the elites in the general society, are essentially testing, uh, testing the strength uh, of the system. So they see, like, you know, uh, people came out uh, to protest the war in big numbers, actually, but dispersed, disorganized, not like in previous years. Many of them were arrested. Uh, some of them got big prison terms. So people kind of receded and thought, let's wait, right? Same with the elites. Uh, many of them are deeply unhappy, but they are really afraid to speak up. At some point, uh, objectively, uh, all this negativity will have to come out because uh, you mentioned Balotna. Uh, when Balotna happened, we were relatively still in good shape economically. Mm. 
And since then, Russia had a major decade of major decline. When Before the war started last year, uh, Russians were on average about 10-15% poorer than they were before, before the annexation of Crimea in 2014. So we are exhausted. Resources are exhausted. Uh, military is exhausted. And uh, uh, the, the elite, as, as we discussed it in the beginning, the one important thing is just they don't see the way forward. They don't see, they don't believe in all this crap about import substitution, pivot to Asia. They're well aware that China and India are only about to beat us, beat the hell of a discount for oil and gas out of us, and that's it. So, uh, I mean, you, you can fool Western public with it. You can fool the Russian public, but you can't fool Putin's elite. They know that import substitution and people to China just don't work. So uh, at some point, uh, this uh, exhaust, there will be a tipping moment. This exhaustion will, will, uh, will break up. And uh, uh, this will happen on the background of Putin demonstrating more and more major failures. In this regard, uh, both the fall of Kherson and Kharkov uh, region were the turning points. You saw that in September, after the fall of Kharkivshina, Putin actually threw all the wild cards on the table. Mobilization, uh, swift uh, annexation of new territories with sham referenda, a new wave of nuclear threats, uh, barbaric bombardments of Ukraine. So he was really panicking. Uh, and everybody saw it, that he was so unhappy with swift recapture of territories by Ukraine that he threw all the wild cards at once. I think next big failures might trigger even uh, even bigger cracks uh, in the Russian society, in the Russian elites, and so on. Let's see. I can I can feel that it's coming. We just I mean we just right. few steps away from that. And the obvious question there is if it comes to that. Um, we talked about Andrei Kolesnikov's article, uh, Putin's, uh, Putin's Stalin face. Does he really go Stalin if he feels threatened, if he feels his, 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 the regime is going to fall? Does he really go Stalin to stay in power? And by that, he you know what I mean? To. He wants to. But uh, th there is a fundamental difference. There are many, actually, but the one biggest fundamental difference between his uh, times and Stalin times is that the current elite is extremely opportunistic, corrupt, and lazy. Uh, in Stalin times, we had a totally different situation. We had different clans of commissars, actually the products of a civil war, who were interested in, you know, finding out who is the coolest cat in town. You know, that, yeah. that was actually, that was the driving force behind the whole uh, Stalin's period of terror and repression. We had a bunch of relatively young revolutionaries, commanders of the Red Army in the civil war, who were hungry for you know you know more power for uh, they they really had a lot of battlefield and repression experience and uh, they could not do anything else they they were not pretty much capable of like building a peaceful and prosperous uh, state so that was the setup the environment when Stalin's repression uh, came up not now uh, all these folks are extremely opportunistic. And that can be tracked by their own views and behavior over decades. They can flip-flop on, on major ideological issues in the, in the blink of an eye. There are no hard-line ayatollahs. <laughs> so, so this is why comparison of Russia with Iran or North Korea is irrelevant. 
We don't have neither Ayatollahs nor uh, Kim Jong-un uh, uh, Marxist baptized priests, you know. So there's, there's no ideology. It's only corruption, money, and so on. And also, as we saw from many developments, including anything post-2014, with the army, with the economy, with the military manufacturing complex, these people are lazy. They just cannot deliver. They are no commissars of 1930s and so on, which means, I mean, yeah, really the system is drifting towards Stalinist. We have the biggest level of political uh, prisoners and mass outreach of political repression since 1950s. That's true. However, the, this elite that we're talking about, these are no Stalinist and the uh, commissars. This is uh, just, you know, uh, uh, a much, much less uh, consolidated material that I really don't believe is capable of producing anything resembling of a Stalinist system. So we'll see maybe an attempt at more repression, but it's not going to get to the point of the knock at, on the door at midnight and getting shot in the basement of Lubyanka. Let me let me do a couple of comparisons here, because we have, I think, two relevant historical comparisons. That was a period of Andropov-Chernenko consolidation in 1983-1984, because the Brezhnev period was a relatively vegetarian era by Soviet standards. But then we, we had Andropov who attempted um, authoritarian consolidation. And then we had a communist coup d'etat in August 91 when they wanted to scrap Perestroika and establish an outright hardline dictatorship. Both of these attempts have failed because the nomenclatura actually didn't want to go there. Mm. They sabotaged. They sabotaged all these hardline discipline dictatorship uh, revival attempts. And actually, so when Gekachepe in August 91 called for anybody to support them, essentially nobody went. That, this right. is why they failed. Same thing with Andropov. His, his attempt to strengthen the discipline didn't work because people favored liberalization, which ultimately came about later under Gorbachev. So I think we have, uh, the, the, the good news is that uh, Putin's elite is opportunistic. It's not Stalinist uh, at all. They're just simply waiting for the right moment uh, to reverse the course. Mm -hmm. They can't do it now because they're too afraid. But I don't see, I mean, really the comparison with 1930s is uh, mm. uh, a bit way of the mark. Uh -huh. All right. Uh, one thing I, else I wanted to talk to you about before we moved into the second part, and this is just something I'm pretty curious about. What is up with Medvedev? Um, if you look at his public statements, you look at his Twitter feed, and it's just over the top ridiculous. Um, I mean, I don't know if you saw the recent tweet that he just put, put out about the, the United States is going to break up and that uh, Poland's going to annex the Western Ukraine. What is he doing? Why is he behaving this way? We, we both know he's smarter than this, but he seems to be playing a role right now. What is that role and why is he playing it? Because he's trying to be more hardline than, than Patrushev or Putin. And it's, 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 it's just, it's weird. It is. Well, first of all, I think this this is something what I call the Surkov rule. You know, Vladislav Surkov, obviously, yes. was very important, but he fell out uh, of, of uh, influence some time ago. Uh, Surkov syndrome 
as uh, when you start to appeal to public, having lost all your insider influence. So you remember these lengthy rants and our public articles by Surkov, yes. uh, clearly targeted at Putin to convince him in something, but it never went anywhere because this is not how you solve issues in Russia, not to appealing through public. It doesn't matter. You have to go inside the system and have influence uh, there. So the syndrome is when you appeal to public too much, it, it nearly certainly means that you lost all the influence on the inside. That goes to, back to Prigozhin, that goes back to Kadyrov, but Medvedev, I think, is probably the most, the brightest example at the moment. The, the other thing is that, you know, that three years ago, he was dismissed from the prime minister post. Yes. And as, as a compensation, he was offered a tenure as a deputy uh, chairman of National Security Council. He never stuck there. Uh, he's still like a big, you know, silicon implant, which is really not, not attaching to the tissue and, and so on. National Security Council is filled with Patrushev, Bortnikov style KGB folks who are very hostile to Medvedev who think of him as the out-of-touch liberal who doesn't belong here. So uh, he, he, not only he is very much offended by the fact that he lost the second biggest uh, uh, government post after the president, you know, the premiership. And he lost the presidency, too. <laughs> yeah, that was a while ago. I think, he, I think he moved past that. But he considered premiership as the compensation for his loyalty when he warmed the chair for Putin for four years and so on. And he was deeply offended, not only because of the loss of Prime Minister Post, but because he was thrown out in the pit with crocodiles, which is sub the National Security Council. He never found his positive role in there. So I think by instincts, which are pretty primitive with him, we can guess, by instincts, he figures that, I mean, how am I going to reinstall myself as the major figure inside South Bears, where am I now? I'm going to try to be more Catholic, more, more Ayatollah than Patrushev, let me call it this way. <laughs> so, so, this is, uh, so this is how he's trying to sort of reinstate some okay. of his lost authority, regain some, because uh, he thinks, I'm in South Bears now, South Bears is all about being a hardline hawk. So he tries to be hardline right. folk the way he's capable. I mean, right. he never was a really bright guy. I mean, that, that's let, let's be frank about that. So he's doing it the way he can. It's coming across completely ridiculous. I mean, if that's what he's trying to do, it's it's almost comical to watch to watch his public station sta statements and watch his uh, watch his his Twitter feed. Well, that's a good place to segue. Um, in a few moments, we will continue our discussion and speculate a bit about how losing Ukraine could resonate in Russia and possibly spark political change. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Vilnius, Lithuania, is leading Russian opposition figure Vladimir Milov. In addition to leading and founding various parties and movements over the years, including Democratic Choice, Solidarność, and For a Russia Without Lawlessness and Corruption, Vladimir also served as Russia's Deputy Energy Minister. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and 
review, as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And for the time being, you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный, я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Гоним вас. С новым веком. So we don't really know how this war will end, but one thing appears to be reasonably certain. Владимир Путин's quest to subjugate Ukraine is clearly headed for failure. Zbigniew Brzezinski has famously observed that without Ukraine, Russia ceases to be an empire, but with Ukraine suborned and subordinated, Russia automatically becomes an empire. My corollary, Vladimir, to Brzezinski is as follows. Russia cannot be a democracy as long as it has imperial designs on Ukraine. But once it gives up these designs, the path to democracy becomes easier. It doesn't become obvious or, or, or easy, but it becomes easier. But losing Ukraine can also spark a backlash on the imperial and nationalist right that could drive Russia in another direction. Um, how do you see what appears to be a looming defeat in Ukraine? It's just a matter of time, in my opinion, um, before, before the, 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 this ends in defeat for Russia. And defeat can mean a lot of things. But for me, what I'm saying here is Ukraine will no longer be in Russia's sphere of influence. Russia's ability to influence Ukraine, even if they do manage to hang on to some territory, is going to be severely limited. Russia has lost Ukraine. And that's a big deal with a lot of Russian people. Um, that's a very big deal. Um, a lot of Russians, not speaking of present company here, but a lot of Russians view Ukraine as part of Russia. It's not. The history is clear about that, but the, the, the belief is powerful. How much of an effect is losing Ukraine going to have on the Russian body politic? Uh, well, first, Brian, I have to uh, say a few words about this Russian imperialism and the, the, the Ukrainian role in it. I think it's greatly exaggerated. It's greatly exaggerated. And it was largely all this uh, sentiment that we need to uh, conquer and subjugate Ukraine was artificially brought up. Even right now, if you look at the opinion polls, 80% of people who in one or another way say that they support Putin's war would cite defensive reasons, uh, that they believe in Russian propaganda narrative that there was some genocide of Russian-speaking peoples in they Donbass. They really believe that. They really believe that. They, re they really believe that, unfortunately. We're trying our best to convince them that it's true, and we have some success, but we can talk about it later. The second thing is NATO enlargement and missiles and military bases placed in, in Ukraine against us and so on. There are no military bases in Ukraine, the, the NATO military bases. Definitely, definitely. There are no missiles and no uh, attack groups placed in neither of the NATO member states that have joined uh, since the 90s. We are also trying to explain that the Russian public, to some extent, it works, but it needs more time. But uh, only like one-fifth of people who support Putin's war really cite imperialist reasons for that, that it's it's not really a nation, This is these are Russian lands we need to conquer, which is super minority. That's less than 10% of the Russian people overall. Before the war began a year ago, only about 3 to 5% of Russians said that they actually believe that the war is going to happen. 
and more than half were terrified about the prospect. They thought it was Western propaganda and Russia is really preparing no war. Same thing with annexation of Crimea uh, nine years ago. Uh, there was no demand for it, bottom up. Putin was speaking two months before the annexation at his press conference that Crimea is Ukrainian territory, we don't need it, and everybody applauded. Solovyov, the famous propaganda guy, you can Google, there's, there's his famous video several years before the annexation of Crimea where he says that uh, we don't need it and it's Ukrainian land and just don't, don't uh, touch this uh, and uh, that will end up disastrously. So as a matter of fact, I remember what happened 20 years ago. There was near zero imperial sentiment at all. And, and actually, I blame Brzezinski at the moment because uh, we talked about this with I was in the government and we talked about this with many Russian officials. And a lot of them really said, oh, well, if Brzezinski is saying that Russia needs Ukraine for imperial purposes, then maybe that's really the case. No, I, seriously, it's, it's not that I'm not blaming Brzezinski mm. for what happened. But uh, uh, what, what this means is that there was like, you know, far less geopolitical thinking 20 years ago in the Russian elite and Russian society than people could have imagined. Russia could have normally accepted independence over in Ukraine, Ukraine joining EU, Ukraine joining NATO. 20 years ago, we had no problem with that. It was all artificially stirred and artificially uh, brought up. Now, what's going to happen after Putin's defeat? And I agree with you that he will suffer, hopefully this year, he will suffer a major defeat, which will uh, finally sign and seal uh, the independent sovereign prospect for Ukraine uh, out of Russia's dominance. What's going to happen? Uh, for those of you who want to read this in writing, I will have an article coming up at, at the Center for Liberal Modernity uh, in Berlin in just a few days. And... Uh, uh, generally, I think I don't believe uh, that uh, there will be a major political change happening after the defeat in Ukraine instantly. Russian society, Russian system has a very big inertia. But I don't also, I don't, I also don't see the way out of of, of this for Putin. Uh, he has been, uh, you know, getting away with a lot of losses and defeats for way too long. And I think we now see a culmination when the society is finally asking questions now, where is this all heading? What have we achieved with this guy in power for uh, nearly a quarter of a century? That is mounting. You saw that recently in uh, some of the hardline pro-war telegram channels. You saw some of the you know, initial outbreaks of that kind of questioning, or even on the television, particularly after the fall of Kherson. You will see a lot of that, and that will be a turning point when people will start questioning not only Putin, but his policies. And here's where several issues would uh, come to play. First is what I said. Most of Putin's elite is opportunist. There are really no hardline ideologists. Second, uh, society is really very tired. It's, it's not infested with this imperialist fever. Just uh, remember, before he called out for mandatory mobilization in September, they tried to recruit people for money in the regions and for very generous pay. How much they mobilized? 30, 40,000 max. This is like not a sign of a society which is ready to go fight, to mobilize, to fight for imperial cause, whatever. 
Plus, people really are very exhausted with the economic difficulties. So I would say that the demand for a U-turn in policies is great. Mm. Maybe it's not going to happen fast, but I compare some political changes which, which might happen with like uh, post-Ceausescu Romania mm. or post John Buchwan South Korea. Uh, when the uh, departure of a major dictator did not, I mean, it was not immediately followed by democratization, but it was followed by a weaker regime, which could not withstand the bottom-up pressure for change and policy U-turn. Uh, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be fast. But I think given all the objective factors, that's the, the way mm. uh, for Russia I just, like with Gekichipe in August 91, I just don't see any plausible way how the hardliners can sustain all these aggressive policies long term. We see that they're failing on all fronts with China, with Iran, uh, with pivot to Asia, with import substitution. Everybody sees it. There is no way for them to succeed. So uh, defeat in Ukraine is just the top of the iceberg. It's, it's, it's not just, a, you know... Uh, a potential new beginning for a system, it will be a sign of an utter failure of this aggressive, mm. consolidated type of dictatorship. I mean, I really hope you're right that the imperial attitudes of the Russian population is overstated. I would say in my anecdotal experience, conversations I had um, in my time in Russia in the 90s and 2000s, talking to otherwise liberal Russians, they tended to look at Ukraine like it was theirs. Um, I'll, I'll never forget a conversation I had with a very good friend in St. Petersburg um, in the 90s. It was when the Czech Republic and Poland and Hungary were joining NATO, and she was really, really bothered by this. She was really upset about this. She was otherwise very liberal. And, and, and uh, I, right. I, I, uh, let me add to this. Let me add to this. When, uh, when Germany was separated uh, in two after the World War II, Konrad Adenauer and Christian Democratic Union were openly saying no to other Nestle line and to some of the German, Eastern German lands transferred to Poland. They said we will never accept it, never. But now they accept it. It's an official border and uh, everybody's right. fine with it. The question is not what, whether there was some post-imperial sentiment. Definitely there was and still is. Question is whether Russian society was ready to accept independent Ukraine. And here I would offer a big yes. I mean, I think they were ready to accept it formally, but in reality, and like going back to this conversation I was having in Petersburg, I decided to kind of like provoke my friend a little bit. And I said, if you're so upset about Poland and the Czech Republic and Hungary, what are you going to do when Ukraine joins NATO? Which I believed at the time eventually was inevitable. Um, and she looked at me like I had lost my mind. She said, you know, and I was like, you know, it's not yours. It's an Evasha. Right. But but this this is that was not an unusual attitude I got. But what I want to lead into with this is a, a imagine a loss in the war, which is very, very plausible. Um, and imagine Ukraine fully integrates itself into the West. Imagine Ukraine going forward becomes as we all want it to be and we I all and I think it will be becomes a successful part of the western community that means a full member of the european union that means a full member of nato that means it becomes something like poland or the czech republic how does that resonate with russians given the historic ties with ukraine and how they tend to look at it is there going to be this tent, this this sense of if the ukrainians can do this so can we will, will this be a kind of a catharsis that could push russia in a more democratic direction 
Definitely. Uh, if you look at one of the polls published by Levada Center at the end of the year, you can see that Zelensky, I mean, with all the, you know, extremist charges, like you can get 15 years of jail time for this, but Zelensky is ranked number eight among Russians as person of the year, following Putin, uh, the classical Putin, Shaigu, Lavrov, Mishustin, who is there. <laughs> number eight is Zelensky. Which means that, I mean, he, he really resonated a lot uh, uh, during, I think his message to Russians was a little bit better in the first few months of, of the war than, than later on. But still, he really resonated, uh, he was listened to, and he's extremely popular, and Russian people are interested to hear what he has to say. And uh, generally, I think this might be something what happened to West Berlin or South Korea, because Ukraine, I know that they, they are really consolidating themselves around new identity, and uh, I don't want to offend anyone, but they are, to a large extent, a Russian-speaking nation. This is actually what makes Putin mad. To me, this is the main reason why he finally launched the invasion, because a successful Russian-speaking nation in our neighborhood, which was able to build democracy to resist being integrated into Putin's Eurasian dictatorship realm, uh, successfully integrating with EU and NATO, this this is an existential threat, number one, uh, that Russian people can see that you can choose democracy and be successful and integrate with the West. Uh, this is actually why he hated all this independent uh, Ukrainian project, and this, was, this is what ultimately led him uh, to make a decision to invade. So, so this is why yeah, I think if Ukraine really integrates with the West and really becomes a success story, mm. that will send shockwaves and will have a profound impact on the Russian population, right. which is why we need to double down efforts on uh, supporting a successful Ukrainian transformation. Yeah, no, and I, I would agree with you. I would, I would kind of tweak your notion of, of, of Ukraine being a Russian-speaking. It's a bilingual nation, um, it's, and it's remarkable. In my trips to Ukraine before the war, I heard Ukrainian spoken in places where I never heard it spoken before. I heard Ukrainian being spoken on the streets of Odessa, for example. Um, and I heard conversations where both languages were in play. People were speaking both languages to each other. That wasn't the case in the 90s. The 90s was pretty segregated. The East and the South was Russian speaking. The, 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 the West was, was Ukrainian speaking. Now, with the new generation, everybody I know in Ukraine now speaks both languages. I don't know anybody that doesn't speak both, which is, which is pretty yeah, remarkable. Uh I think right. what I, agree with you. I, I, I totally agree with you. And as, again, I reiterate, I don't want to offend anybody. And it's great that Ukrainians uh, really are more appreciating their own culture, their language right now. It's a good thing. However, uh, still, most of them speak Russian. And really, we do have a lot of these historic social ties together. So Russians think of Ukrainian nation, I mean, in a good sense of the word, as something very reminiscent of a society that we are. This is what Russians think of Ukraine. So if uh, if uh, Ukrainians shrug off this notion that a post-Soviet state cannot be a successful functioning democracy, and if they will show everybody that yes, they can, that will have a profound impact. Yeah, no, and I I, I think they are they they are doing it this uh, uh, right now, and I think what gets under Putin's skin is that it is a country with Russian speakers that is not loyal to Moscow. I think that that is what bugs him, which kind of brings me to where I'm looking at the clock and we're bumping up against the end. But where I, how I wanted to kind of close this is 
Could you imagine a world in our lifetimes where Russia and Ukraine, where, where not only Russia accepts Ukraine's independence and sovereignty, but you have good neighborly relations, something like we in the United States have with our, our, our wonderful neighbors to the north, the Canadians, um, which is also a country where English is spoken, but, but it doesn't mean we think they have to be like part of us. Do you? Can you imagine a world where Russia and Ukraine could have these kinds of relations that the U.S. and Canada have? It, it's going to take a long time because there's a lot of mistrust that's, that's going to have to be overcome, but... It's going to take a lot of time. After what happened, it's definitely not going to be easy. Uh, but uh, first, I think Russia will have to accept independence and sovereignty of Ukraine. There is no other way around. Uh, and uh, Russia will not be reintegrated into a world. Uh, and I don't think that sanctions will be removed before we accept uh, our guilt for the aggression pay reparations and, and uh, damages uh, to Ukraine and so on. So that, that is a must. That is like everything that comes with uh, Putin's defeat in this war. Russia will have to once and for all accept the idea of an independent uh, sovereign Ukraine. Now, the question is whether Ukrainians will be ready to normalize relations with, with us uh, over the years. Well, I think uh, we need to give them time. We need to give them time. And after all, all the tragedy that they experienced, and listen, I mean, I'm against the collective guilt notion, but still, all the damage and all the brutality, all the atrocities, they were done by Russians, by, by Russian nationals. And it is obviously the worst part of our nation, but it's part of our nation. So uh, I can understand their feelings. But listen, I talk to Ukrainians a lot. And just like you described your conversations with uh, folks from St. Petersburg who wanted to conquer, conquer Ukraine uh, in the 90s. But the thing is that uh, most of the Ukrainians with whom I speak actually uh, are really much accepting the idea that we will have to normalize relations uh, in the future. And uh, we'll have to build together a prosperous common uh, European space. Most of them have nothing against us as a nation. They understand that crimes are being done by specific war uh, criminals and so on. There is the other part, which speaks about the collective guilt of all of the Russians, that there is no such thing as good Russians and so on. But I feel that it's not a majority. But let's see. I mean, we sh obviously, after all the tragedy that Ukrainians have experienced, which was inflicted by Russia, uh, they should be given time. Uh, and it's up for them uh, to decide. And it's also up to us to prove to the world that we are ready to reform and transform. Yes, I mean... There is no, there is no, like somebody said, there is no blank check for Russia. Uh, we should not be easily forgiven for all of the sins. Uh, and uh, Russia will have to go a long way to rebuild trust in the first place. Yeah, when this when this is finally over, we're going to be looking at a very very different Europe than, uh, and specifically a different Eastern Europe than we than we were look, we looked at before February twenty fourth of last year. Bump it up against the end here, Vladimir. This has been a great conversation. Anything you want to add before I wrap it up? Don't write Russia off. I see many people actually who are thinking that it's going to be like a perpetual dinosaur Jurassic Park dictatorship with imperialist ambitions. No, it's being uh, fooled by the propaganda. It's been hijacked by mafia autocracy more than 20 years ago. Uh, it, society is in a very painful condition and it's just looking desperately for a way out. We're trying our best to 
to help Russians find this way out. And the sooner it happens, the better for the rest of the world. And exiles like yourself in the in the Russian Democratic opposition in exile are, are, are doing a lot toward that that goal. And for that, we're grateful. On that note, we'll wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Vilnius, Lithuania, one of my favorite cities in the world, has been leading Russian opposition figure Vladimir Milov. In addition to leading and founding various parties and movements over the years, including Democratic Choice, Solidarność, and for a Russia without lawlessness and corruption. Vladimir also served as Russia's deputy energy minister. Vladimir, thanks for an enlightening discussion and thanks for making us all a lot smarter. Thank you. Great being with you. Great being with you. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And for the time being, you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team. 